can be seated. There is certainly a lot going on in this moment in our world. We're obviously about to be struck by a tropical storm, uh, now in New York and Connecticut, and soon to be here in Boston. Afghanistan is being overtaken by the Taliban, and many are concerned in that nation for their safety, and including and especially our Christian brothers and sisters in that nation. The people of Haiti continue to suffer from the earthquake uh, a couple of weeks ago and grieve the loss of loved ones and just continue to deal with struggle and trial. And obviously we're still living in the midst of a pandemic um, that we did hope would be mostly behind us, but it's still impacting and affecting the way we can relate as a community and, and, uh, and our lifestyles as well. With all of this as our context, we actually turn today to Psalm 132. And, and you might think, well, why in the world, in the midst of a moment like this, would we turn back to these ancient words that pilgrims sang on their way to Jerusalem long, long ago? It is just the next psalm in our summer series on the Songs of Ascent. So that's one reason why. It is also the inspired word of God. And therefore, we come to this expectantly, trusting that as always, God's word will be relevant and speak into our lives. And I think we'll find that with this ancient psalm, even in the tumultuous moment like this, as we seek to fulfill our calling as God's people to be a unified body that proclaims Jesus in word and deed to our city and, and represents him and causes the people of our city, maybe some of you here this morning who don't yet really know Jesus, to go, what is this all about? This is beautiful and good. That's our calling. That's what we're on about. That's what we're doing in this city. That's what we're called to be. And week by week, we open up the Bible because we believe that in it, God speaks to us, that he forms more deeply in us his life and gives us more of an understanding of what he wants from us and how he loves us and cares for us. And so we come to Psalm 132 with that kind of expectation this morning that God would continue to form us as his people in a tumultuous moment uh, in our world. This psalm has two parts, really, <clears throat> structured around two things. First, a plea in verses 1 through 10, and then a response or an answer to that plea in the form of a promise or prom the promises of God. And, and we're going to look at both sections. I would invite you to open up your Bibles <clears throat> to Psalm 132 with me and have it in front of you as we, as we look at it together. So we'll start with this plea. And we do need both of these sections, actually. I think we'll find them both, that they both speak to us as God's people. But we'll start with the plea of verses 1 through 10, and quite simply, it is a plea for God's presence. We might summarize verses 1 through 10 as this, Lord, we need you, we need you, we need you. And I wonder if we could say that there wouldn't be anything more pertinent to our moment today than this plea. We, we need you, God. We need you to come in the midst of the brokenness around the world, the brokenness in our lives, the difficulties that we face, we need you desperately. Honestly, no plea could be more pertinent to a situation like we're living in right now. Our minister of missions, Julian, had uh, reached out this week to one of his contacts at the seminary, Gordon Conwell, uh, a man who had served in Afghanistan for years and still has contacts in that nation today, and asked just how can we be praying for this land? And this man sent back six prayer requests <clears throat> It's just kind of six bullet points. And I wanted to share the sixth one with all of you. Quote, pray for God's kingdom to come to Afghanistan. There are no human solutions, not armies, not money, nor training. Nothing has been able to change their hearts, the real root of the problem. Only God can do that through Jesus, end quote. It's another way of saying we need you. <laughs> we need you, God. 
We need you to meet us and to come into this moment, into our situation. And that's what the cry, um, well, that's our cry for Afghanistan. It's our cry for the other nations of the world, Haiti, Iraq, North Korea, but even places like France and England. And yes, even the United States. We need you, Lord. Our world is a mess. Our nation is a mess. Truth is under attack. The strong and the wealthy are exploiting people. People are no longer acknowledging you. We need you. That's what we need. This is our plea as well. And it's this sense of desperate dependence that informs, not, it was, certainly it informs Psalm 132. Honestly, this desperate dependence is the basic posture of the Christian faith, really. And so it informs really all of the Bible, and especially these Psalms of Ascents from Psalm 120 to 134, which are really a manual for what it means to follow God, to walk in discipleship with him. And of course, therefore, they're emphasizing again and again this, this desperate dependence upon the Lord. This is how that cry goes. The plea is specifically in verses 8 through 10. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. God, we need you, so please don't turn away from us. Don't turn back. Be at your resting place. Remember, these are pilgrims heading to Jerusalem where God dwells in the temple. Be there, O Lord, and bring blessing to your people. We desperately need you. At the beginning of Scripture, as we open up the first pages of Genesis, we're confronted with the fact of our dependence as creatures, that we depend wholeheartedly on the benevolence, mercy, and kindness, and provision of our God, who is the creator of all things. This is what it means to walk by faith. It's to know our dependence. And these pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem, they know their dependence, and so they utter this cry of, we need you. But let's dig a little deeper. What's the basis for this plea for God to be in his dwelling place and to bring blessing upon his people? And it's found in verse 10, which we just read, for your sake, or for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Lord, for David's sake, hear our cry. Because of what our king did, Lord, hear our cry of dependence upon you. And this takes us back to verses 1 through 5. Again, look with me at Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. That is to say, they say, Lord, hear our plea for you on the basis of our, what our king has done. And our king has prioritized your presence. He made this vow that he wouldn't rest until he could find a dwelling place for you, O God. And then we get verses 6 and 7, which, which bring up a story from the Old Testament, from David's reign, that's told for us in 2 Samuel 6, about David's prioritization of the presence of of God. This is central to their plea. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Well, the story that they're picking up on here, that they're alluding to, is the story of what happened when David had secured the kingdom. He had been already anointed king of Judah, but many years passed, and there was resistance after Saul had died. There was a division in the kingdom. And several years, maybe two, maybe up to seven years later, he was anointed the king of Israel as well. And so the kingdom was unified now under David's kingship. 
And then he captures Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 5 from the Jebusites. And that makes this the center of his reign. The political center of the nation. Where his house is built. And then he defeats the armies of the Philistines at the end of chapter 5. And so, the beginning of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, we have David reigning and ruling over all of God's people. And now at rest from the, the, the pro- provocation of his enemies. What's the first thing that he does? He sends out a delegation to retrieve the Ark of the Covenant. To go and get the Ark and bring it back to the city that he's just conquered and made the home of the nation. The Ark had been taken out of, Jerusalem, uh, taken out of the tabernacle when God's armies were trying to defeat the Philistines in, First Samuel, in, in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. And it had been captured. It wasn't a good thing for the Philistines to hold on to it, so they sent it back. Some of you will know this story. They sent it back to Israel, and it ended up in a town, Kiriath-Jerim. And it stayed there for 20 years. And it was David's first act, really, when the kingdom and the dust had settled, to go and retrieve the ark and bring it back, bring it into the city of David. So that this city would not only be the political, uh, the political locus Uh, of power, preserving and protecting the life of God's people, but it would become the central place of worship as well, the place of God's presence. And of course, David knew that God's presence guarantees the distinct nature of this nation and this people, and that this presence upholds the reign of his own kingdom and the blessing of God's people. So he prioritizes the presence of God and retrieves the ark. And the psalm is conjuring up that story here to show David's commitment to the presence of the Lord. This kind of commitment, by the way, David, of David's to bring the ark to Jerusalem is mirroring a commitment of Moses long before David. You might remember the story of the golden calf after they'd come to Sinai and the people of God turned away in idolatry. And after that, God says, look, you go to the promised land. I'll send an angel to go with you. And Moses, is like, Moses just thinks this is the worst thing he's ever heard. And so he protests And God says, I'm going to send an angel because you're such a stiff-necked people that if I go with you, I'm afraid that I'll consume you in my holiness. It's almost out of mercy that God says, I won't go with you. And Moses says, no, 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 this cannot be. You must go with us. If your presence, he says in Exodus 33, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That is, if you don't go with us, God, we're not going. There's no way. And then he continues, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses knows what's at stake. God, we need your presence. Without you, we're nothing. Without you, we're not distinct. We are doomed. And this kind of acknowledgement of the importance of the presence of God, the merciful, gracious presence of God with his people is something that informed David's kingship and his first action to bring the ark back. And so now these pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem are saying, for David's sake, remember David prioritizing your presence. Oh Lord, also be in Jerusalem as we go there and, and meet you in your temple. We too are prioritizing your presence because we are desperate and dependent upon you. I wonder sometimes if we have that kind of desperation for God in our lives. We have so much. We live in the the time in human history when we enjoy more resources than any of our ancestors did. And it's so easy to turn to science or technology or psychology and to solve or to attempt to solve our own problems. In other words, 
in our abundance, we are so tempted to lean upon ourselves. Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, or it's harder for the camel, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than, for, than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think I said that wrong. I think you know what I mean when I'm saying that. Um, and the point is, is, you know, our riches could be financial riches, but they could be networks, they could be education, they could be knowledge, they could be all of these things that we will lean upon other than leaning upon the Lord himself. So in a time of tumult that we're living in, in August of 2021, we desperately need this plea of Psalm 132 again to remind us of our desperation and dependence upon the Lord himself. Is that our plea? So that's the first part of the psalm. The second part of the psalm is a response to the plea. Verses 11 through 18, and this response is actually a telling forth, a reminder of the promises of God to his people. So as much as we need the reminder of the plea, we also need the response. First, in verses 11 and 12, there is this reminder of God's promise to David. A sure oath from which he will not turn back. And I would just point you in verse 10, they say, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And then in verse 11, he will not turn back. There's a direct connection between these two parts. He will not turn back. This was the promise that actually God made to David right after David said, I want to build you a house. In 2 Samuel, back in that story we were just telling, chapter 6 is when the ark is retrieved. Chapter 7, David says, I want to make him a house. But God says, no, 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 David. I'm going to make you a house. I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. These pilgrims are reminded of this promise to David. And then in verses 13 through 18, they're reminded of God's promises to, about Zion, his choice of Zion. He says, this is my resting place forever in verse 14. And then he says, almost in a direct answer to their cry, her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. That is, God says, I will be committed to my dwelling place. I have spoken. I've made a promise, and I will be faithful to my promises. So rest in my promises. Delight in my words. And that's the response to their plea is God will be faithful. The God who has promised will be faithful. And that in, then informs in the, the last two verses of the psalm this forward-looking dimension, what we would call hope. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The Psalter was likely finally knit together out in the post-exilic period. And these pilgrims going to Jerusalem saying and reciting the psalm would have known that there wasn't an heir sitting on David's throne. As they were reminded of this promise that God would have a son of David on the throne forever, they were no doubt lamenting the fact that that wasn't the reality today, but it encouraged them to look forward with great hope at what God would do. And so the promises of God to David and to Zion inform this hope, this forward-looking hope that God would one day bring about a horn to sprout for David. That was a symbol of strength, a lamp for his anointed, and the promise of enemies clothed with shame, but on him his crown will shine. 
The psalm reassures the pilgrims of God's future faithfulness. There will come a time when that promise to David is fulfilled, when the virgin will be with child and give birth to Emmanuel, God with us, as the prophet Isaiah has said. This, of course, is the theme of much of the Old Testament hope, looking forward to that day when David's heir would come and restore the kingdom and restore their fortunes and restore God's presence and rebuild the temple finally and fully. There would spring forth from the stump of Jesse a shoot, And the psalm encourages the pilgrims to look forward with this kind of hope in God's fulfillment of his promises. It's that hope that sustains their faithful clinging to the Lord in his presence and walking faithfully in the present day where it doesn't seem necessarily like those promises are fulfilled or where we're walking in so much tumult and unrest in our day. Their faith knows their need for God. That's the plea. But their faith also is informed by the promises of God and this deep faith that God, one day he will act in this way. And from their perspective, if we were to enter back into their shoes, these pilgrims on this road to Jerusalem, they're like those about whom Hebrews writes in verse 13 of chapter 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. These faithful pilgrims of Psalm 132 would be in that same position. They had seen it from afar, but they did not receive the things promised. And yet they're encouraged in this psalm to put their hope and their trust in this God who will certainly be faithful to his promises. So where does that leave us as we open up these ancient words and we look back? Our situation is similar in some ways in our tumult of the day of the days of our day's context, but it's decidedly different as well. We can't read our Old Testament like they spoke it on the road to Jerusalem. Because we've seen the fulfillment. We've encountered the royal son, the son of David, the son of God. And that day has come with the arrival of his son into the world. That here is the son who comes to take the throne. As the angel Gabriel, as we read in Luke chapter 1, announces to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, not just for a lifetime, but forever. In his, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And we look back on this promise and we recognize it's been fulfilled. And that begins to inform us as the people of God today with a sense of joy and worship in a God who is faithful to his promises. A God who speaks words and they come to pass. For he came and walked among us, and his enemies were clothed with shame. In Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing triumphing over them in him. And on this sun, we read in Psalm 132, his crown will shine. Though little did they or we know that this would be a crown of thorns. Shining radiantly from Calvary on into history, into our own lives, calling us and beckoning us to obedience and faith in this king who gave up so much to defeat our enemies. So we look back on this psalm with gratitude and joy at God's fulfillment of it in the royal son, King Jesus. But there's more because the the twin themes of this song are king and temple. 
And of course, those twin themes are always related in the Old Testament. It is the king who establishes the temple. It's David who says, I want to build a house. And it's his son Solomon who's given the privilege of building the house. And yet in comes this king, this new king. And he establishes a new temple. He comes as the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He comes as God incarnate, as the son of God who had been with the word from the beginning with God from the beginning and who had entered into our world and dwelt among us. And he came to the city of Zion, was rejected and betrayed and falsely accused and crucified. It's interesting, verse 1 of our psalm says, uh, remember the hardships that David endured in building your king, in building your temple. Well, remember the hardships that Jesus endured, much greater, much greater still than David, that he endured in building a new temple. This new dwelling place of God that was no longer confined to the geographic center of Jerusalem. You remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross, these brief, succinct words in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There is more to this great David's greater son, to Jesus, the royal son coming in, than just the conquering of enemies and the establishment of the kingdom. There was a remaking of the temple. There was a new sense of God's presence being accessible and available, breaking out from Jerusalem, from the Holy of Holies, in Jesus' own person, and now in the body of Christ that is spreading throughout the globe in what we call the church today. God is present here among us. Jesus promises that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. There is no longer a necessity of pilgrimage to Jerusalem, though some of us do that and find it edifying. There's no longer a reason to go. There's a reason to gather with the people of God. Because this is where we find the presence of God. So there's so much more as we look back on these promises that God has fulfilled that he did than they even expected. He tore down the temple and built a new one, not made with hands. A temple that we're invited to be a part of and enjoy and embrace the presence of God day by day as we gather with his people. That's who we are as the church. And that's extraordinary and should lead us to fall on our faces as we depend upon his very presence and worship him as the King of kings and Lord of lords the gracious one who gives us himself and his presence, that upon which we are desperately depending for life. What a gift. But there's more. There's one more thing that I want to say. Because for them, they were living in a time of tumult and they were looking forward to the day when God will fulfill the word that he had spoken. Well, we get to look backward with joy and worship at all that God has done in Christ. But we also are waiting for a day just like they were in the midst of turmoil and trial, of pandemics and of revolutions, we're looking forward to a day when this king, who's already won the victory at the cross, who's already suffered great hardships to remake a new temple, to establish a new kingdom in which we would come to life, he has said he will come back and complete the work that he's accomplished, or consummate, I should say, the work that he's accomplished. So, I said we weren't like those pilgrims, but in some sense we are. Because we too are looking at the promises of God and saying, God, those promises have yet to be fulfilled. You've yet to return and make all things new. But you've said that you would, and you are doing that even now. But now we see through a glass dimly, then we shall see face to face. Now we know you in part, then we shall know you fully, even as we are fully known. We're waiting for that day. And so we can look back at this psalm and be tremendously encouraged that God has fulfilled his promises already, that David's royal son has come. 
and the kingdom has been established, and the temple has been remade, and we've been given access to the presence of God. But also we can look back at this psalm and remember that we too are pilgrims on the way to the promised land, and it hasn't yet come. And so when we're afraid, and when we're crying, and when we're shaking our fists, and when we're struggling, we can remember with those pilgrims that God will complete and his promises, that God will be faithful to the words that he has spoken, that God will come back and make all things new, and that we can march on day by day by day, whether in Afghanistan or America. We can march on with our eyes firmly fixed on the prize that's coming, on the future that is certain and sure. And this psalm reminds us to look forward to that future and to know without any doubt that it's coming because he has spoken, because he has promised and because he is faithful. The plea were desperate. The promise has been fulfilled and will be fulfilled. So take heart, pilgrims, and press forward by faith and with great hope. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice. You are so good to have sent David's son through the Virgin Mary, to the enthronement on the cross, and the resurrection on the other side, the ascension to your right hand, the continual rule and reign by his spirit, and the return for which we so deeply long. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come even today. Put an end to the mess. Make every knee bow, every tongue confess. Lord, come today by your spirit and fill us again. We've gathered here because we know that you are present. You've promised to be present. Lord, fill us with your presence that we might be alive, assured, unafraid, courageous, humble, and bold. We pray this in the name of your son and for his glory, our great king, Jesus. Amen.